Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for making the sacrifice to listen to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema right here in South Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon itself at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Get tickets to showings, uh, including an upcoming series of films by the director of the film we're about to talk about. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, we all want something. I, for one, want to go to Australia. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm already tired of all this talking, but my name is Harry, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Oh yeah, yeah. We're, what, yeah we're what's that yeah. silence? Is that is that Cody Narvison, uh, uh Unfortunately, missing today's episode. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, he he's not with us. Sorry, I, I just totally blanked out there. Uh, my name is Aaron. I've grown to hate the emptiness of human speech, and you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. And who is that cresting the ridge on this incredibly long shot? Why, it's a guest making their uh, umpteenth appearance on our podcast. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, uh, it's me, Seth. Uh, All my life, I've been going around waiting for something. It's talking about the sacrifice with you guys. And you can find me at SN Zarate. There he is. Welcome back. Uh, We sort of made an alchemical exchange, um, one for one on Cody, who is out for Quidditch, and Seth, who is in for this movie. Uh, Today, we'll be talking about um, The Sacrifice, a film from 1986. uh, And I'll let Aaron take it away as far as what it's about and who it's by. Indeed. Uh, Sacrifice, 1986, as Jason said, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, The film focuses on a man named Alexander, played by Erlen Josephson, uh, an actor-turned-academic who celebrates his birthday with his family uh, on their waterfront house in Sweden. His family consists of his wife, Adelaide, played by Susan Fleetwood, his stepdaughter, Marta, played by Philippa Franzen, and his son, known only as, uh, in this film, known only as Little Man, and played by Tommy Gvelkvist. Uh, the birthday celebration is interrupted, however, by the sound of fighter jets and a news broadcast announcing an imminent nuclear war. Uh, in desperation, Alexander prays to God and promises to sacrifice all that is important to him, his family, his life, his house, his possessions, if only the inevitable destruction of humanity may be averted. Uh, the Sacrifice is one of two films in the Trilon series focusing on Andrei Tarkovsky, along with next week's uh, The Mirror. Um, the Sacrifice is... Uh, Admittedly an odd, yet kind of an interesting jumping off point for the director's films. Uh, It was the last film Tarkovsky made before his death in 1986. Uh, Also, the second film that he made, uh, along with 1983's Nostalgia, during a self-imposed exile from the Soviet Union. Um, Although the film is is kind of often not considered to be, you know, like top-tier Tarkovsky, uh, it nevertheless was uh, critically acclaimed on release. I think most notably uh, winning the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Jason, what did you think of the film? You know what I thought about the film? Um, I thought that, uh, well, I don't know, going in was one expectation that it completely fulfilled, that this was my first Tarkovsky um, and that I know it's not considered one of his 
better or I know that it's like one of his last, right? If not his last. And um, just the expectation of being a very long sort of, I won't say grueling, but, you know, fairly flat uh, narrative um, that is just punctuated by elements of the surreal and uh, nearly mythological, just like that flat sort of experience that was going to take me a lot to get through. It, it did deliver on that. That is like, I don't think that um, for all it is and isn't, it is not like atypical of what I've heard of Tarkovsky's movies. Um, I will say that it defied expectation in that it is, like I said, not boring. It is like really pleasurable to look at and listen to despite being like just very, apocalyptically sad and like desaturated and really, really I'm, I'm trying to come up with better words to come up to, to describe a thing that I ultimately, that I usually don't like to see in movies, just sort of that dry, um, you know, I'm not saying anything new about the movie, so I'll, I'll try to pinch that one off, but, uh, I really like how the characters, um, slowly, but surely like develop most of them anyway um alexander the main character himself uh is all talk and uh, even talking about how much he dislikes talking as harry alluded to in his uh, in his intro but uh by the end he's just like completely just uh, denatured he's completely feral he's lost all sense of like uh you know coherent uh poetic thought um and it just like I, it was hard to pinpoint for me the moment at which that happened but i feel like it was between his um dream sequences and his uh, trauma with his son and, you know, his uh, growing further from his generally his family, but particularly his wife and his daughter. Um, you know, it's, it is a very weirdly circular movie, um, both in like how characters literally move about the screen and in how, uh, you know, the story tends to like, it, it has eaten itself by the end. They've brought their own, or excuse me, he's brought his own destruction by averting a larger, you know, cataclysmic destruction. Um, it, it, it this movie does it freaked my being a little bit because it I did not know that it had such supernatural elements going in um, and it is very clearly that uh, the moments where it, you know it does get supernatural it really is weird <laughs> to look at and to square against the rest of the movie uh, but not in an unpleasant way I do get I do, do get the feeling I'm going to listen to this uh, or excuse me watch this one sec Abel oh we got a dog dog on the guest yeah he's just barking I do get the feeling I'm going to watch more Tarkovsky movies and maybe be better prepared for the feeling of, you know, that I'm, that I'm trying to describe and maybe be able to um, elaborate on it a little bit more. But for now uh, I'm going to uh, point the camera very, very, very slowly um, over at Harry in Cody's absence. Uh, it's going to pass over a large wide shot uh, that represents where Cody would have been until slowly, but surely Harry's uh, frame starts to creep in. Um, so Harry, your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. And as I'm talking, imagine that about halfway through my being done, it suddenly revealed that what you thought was me was actually just my reflection in a mirror or a window or something along those lines. Uh, if you <gasps> would please, thank you. Um, and and also, it's a very cool shot that you're like really impressed by. Um, anyway, uh, Jason sort of took the words right out of my mouth uh, off the bat. Where this was also my first Tarkovsky, which I'm a little bit ashamed to admit because I've been looking forward to his filmography for a long time. Um, I just have never gotten around to it because of how intimidating it is. Um, it's a very funny first Tarkovsky in that I, the first act of this movie plays like a parody of Tarkovsky movies, and I think that's intentional, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But um, and that that opens up into what I think is is has got to be uh, an utterly meta sort of like examination of Tarkovsky's filmography and his sort of philosophy on filmmaking and art and sort of um, 
generation and, and what, what he owes uh, the artists to come and sort of like his son. And I think from that perspective, which is the perspective that I sort of ended up viewing this film through, it's, I was really impressed by how utterly realized it is. Right. I think that this is a movie that, that despite how, um, not, not aimless, but how opaque it can seem. I think it has a, a like utterly realized thesis statement on what it's attempting to accomplish. And I think that it realizes that thesis statement in how it communicates like unbelievably um, clearly, despite the fact that it can feel so difficult to sort of like um, parse at times, right? Especially in the beginning. Um, it's just, it's a movie that has a lot of layers to it, but I think all of those layers are, are deeply clear, right? We had talked about how um, there are a lot of different means of analyzing this movie, right? Like there's, there's a class commentary happening. There's definitely a gender commentary happening. Um, and then there's there's sort of a Freudian or a psychoanalytic. There's a an existential, obviously, that's the one that I'm most inclined toward. Um, and then there's sort of a deconstructive one when you examine what the movie's actually doing versus what it sort of purports to be doing. Um, and in in through all of that, despite how how many different way avenues into this movie there are, um, and I I'm not saying this to show off, right? I'm, I'm saying it to sort of demonstrate how clear the movie is. Before the movie was over, I caught myself wondering if it was going to end with a dedication to his son, and then it did, right? And it's just like that's the sort of like clarity that we're working with is just that like this is a movie that in my mind like absolutely knows what it's doing to a to a level that like a real it's it's like a real statement on auteur theory right in the sense that like tarkovsky was like doing something here and like wanted to like think about himself and wanted to think about the art that he was making and what he was leaving behind and like probably knew this was his last movie and i i think you can see all of that all of that tension and all of that trauma and all of those thoughts like really work themselves out on screen, um, both in like a formal perspective and in a narrative perspective um, between the plot, the characters, the the choices he's making. It's just like a really impressive object, right? It's just something that's like, this is Tarkovsky's sort of like swan song. song and like, it, it really makes sense to me from that perspective. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to sort of working through that, I guess. Um, and now let's see, what would I do? I'm going to say, uh, I can see that Seth is looking for me um, and I'm very carefully, skillfully avoiding uh, his gaze, um, somewhat magical in a magical realist sense. And, and I'm also wearing a, um, a sort of like appropriative kimono. So you can imagine that as Seth sort of fruitlessly looks for me uh, and cannot find me. Somehow you're able to escape the yard that I'm sitting in with manner of stealth unseen. Um, no, honestly, uh, I, as, uh, was, as I was introduced, I've been on the podcast a few times and all the other, all the other movies and podcasts that I've watched and discussed have really, from my perspective, been movies like that were from this generalizations, whatever. I don't need to justify my own existence or do I, uh, they were entertainment first. Uh, and this was the first movie where I saw it and I, um, was thinking to myself, oh no, this, this is film as art. Like this is film with a different purpose. Uh, and I think, you know, I might come off as a bit of an ingenue in this discussion, uh, because I probably don't have the, uh, the grammar that you guys have the jargon, but, uh, 
I was really taken with just like a lot of the cinematography, specifically like the framing of shots, how everything sort of, uh, the, the, he always included uh, Tarkovsky always included a couple shots to show you sort of like what would be the backs of uh, rooms, but otherwise, like almost every set has like a proscenium through which you view the characters, uh, and that really blew my mind. Um, where you know at any point, because there are a lot of long takes, you could like freeze the image and think, oh yeah, this is this is a picture. This was very consciously composed. Um, so that is something that, uh, that really stuck out to me. And then, uh, as Harry mentioned, it's obviously, you know, rife with meaning, uh, some, some of which, which was shallow enough that I was able to pick up on it. So I will contribute where I can. Um, but before we get to that, I know, uh, Aaron wants to share his thoughts. Yeah, my first thought is it's f- fucked up that uh, you would uh, consider a goofy movie, an episode that you were on, uh, not film as art for some an reason. An artless film. Dash just, no pure entertainment, really no something for the cheap seats, you know what I feel? Goofy movie. It's, uh, it's bread and you, circus. You got me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, no, uh, look, I look. Uh, anybody who's a uh, uh, very close listener of this podcast uh meaning nobody, uh, will remember that at the f- beginning of the year when we, I, th- I don't even remember as part of the episode, but like we just went around and said some uh, New Year's resolutions we had. I said 2021 was going to be Tarkovsky watch for Aaron because I've also not seen a Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky film, uh, definitely a blind spot in my film education, which is why it's a thing. I will definitely be seeing all of his movies before the end of the year. And if I don't, don't ask me about it. Uh, like I'm going to make a clip nope. of this and send <laughs> you don't. it to you. Yep, if I don't bring it up on another trial of episode, it just, it, I never said any of this and you will have to edit this out uh, in the future. Um, no, but uh, I, I liked this movie quite a bit. Uh, I, you know, I, again, bit, bit maybe of an odd spot. Um, is a, is a jumping in point. Um, but I think maybe not a bad jumping in point, uh, as a person who hosts a movie podcast, specifically a movie podcast that covered, uh, Bellatar's damnation earlier this year. I think that this film is very comparable to that in a lot of weird ways. Um, but like, I'm sorry to make the joke, but while we were watching, Jason literally aloud said guy who has only seen, uh, damnation. Uh, wow. This reminds me a lot of damnation. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Aaron. Please go ahead. But while, so Damnation is a film that like, uh, it very purposefully gets into like the mud and like the dirt and the shit that make up the lot that makes up the lives of the characters in that movie. Uh, the sacrifice instead keeps its characters kind of, uh, visually at least separated from the causes of their anguish. Right. Um, so the main character, Alexander makes all these little speeches about, um, you know, the, the sinful, uh, or unnecessary nature of modern society, uh, you know, all of the ills that are brought a- upon humanity by a kind of technological progress that promises conveniences, um, but but are rarely seen that just brings us towards this kind of uh, warfare and destruction. Um, it, which is to say there is this kind of difference between Damnation 2, right? Um, th- this movie, I think, ends up feeling like weirdly hopeful uh, and certainly spiritual um, and maybe even optimistic, although maybe that's stretching it a little bit um, in, in opposition to kind of the, the narcissism uh, of damnation. Um, a thing about me is I think I, 
I like some narcissism uh, with my movies from time to time. I, I like when a movie gets kind of deep down in the mud with its characters. Um, but I, I think I was able to kind of appreciate uh, what this film was was doing as well. Um, I think that this movie does feel kind of hard to get, um, but I think that the Tarkovsky gives the viewer quite a bit of leeway. I think a lot of that is due to the speeches from the film's main character. It kind of ties into what Harry said. We're like, this movie is about a lot, you know, a lot of things. Um, I think any individual scene may feel very hard to kind of piece into, you know, the overall statement that this film is making. There are individual like dream sequences and whatnot that are hard to pin down, and I don't have a handle on a lot of them. Um, but I do think that, despite the the dreamy nature of this film and a lot of these individual scenes, this movie is about very clearly what it's about, and it's about the things that the character said that the movie's about. Um, so it, it never ends up feeling, I think, as challenging, um, as it, it maybe should, uh, despite being pretty slow and filled with, with long takes, um, and, in all that. So, uh, I really enjoyed it. I am excited to continue, uh, Tarkovsky watch 2021 with, I think we're covering, uh, the mirror next week, but, uh, yeah. I think this is a weird start, but I think a, a good one. So I'm interested to see what we have to chat about this one moving from here. Yeah, as am I. Uh, it's a really interesting perspective to have it be all of our first Tarkovsky's um, because we'll be working backwards in time. That's why uh, we kicked but, Cody off this episode. He, he has seen too many movies. Oh, has he? Is he, he, he cannot allow it. Uh, he's seen, I think he's seen Stalker and I think he's seen he's one other one. And, uh, Solaris and I think a couple of other ones. Oh, yeah, gee. Yeah, well, this couldn't have, this seen couldn't have he's, yeah. he's too educated for us rubes that are don't know what we're talking about. He's too educated. He's too much of a leader. He's too much of a project manager. He's just too much of a person. Uh, but on the point of the sacrifice, um, I really liked what you said, Aaron, about, <clears throat> and this is something that the thread that goes, I think, through what everybody said about this movie, that um, like the characters being visibly separated from their, the causes of their anguish, because that space for me left a lot, especially like not a whole lot of the characters are built out very far, except like maybe Otto and, um, and Alexander to like exact plot and relationship elements, you know, like they all, excuse me, they all get kind of, um, you know, comparable screen time, especially in the middle act. But like, uh, I, I wanted to go at like how those characters, particularly Alexander, like you called it narcissism. There's a cynicism to the kind of stuff he's talking about in the very first act. Um, you know, he, he's got this, like he decries the advancement of technology, et cetera, and our ability to, to grapple with it. He, he talks about like wielding a microscope, like a cudgel and how, uh, you know, prehistoric savages were more cultured than we kind of thing. Just all those, uh, you know, onanism, uh, you know, mo monologuing for like two thirds of the movie, but then he literally, and this is just like the turn that got my head spinning. He literally makes a deal with God to fuck a witch and save the world. And I don't say that just for the like uh, comedic impact, though I'm sure that the audience is in stitches right now, but because like that is such a moment that plays out quite slowly and quite without a whole lot of fanfare that he literally makes a deal with God and then saves, potentially saves the earth. If this is not all, you know, excuse me, fever dream. Um, and I wanted to know from the rest of the crew uh, what you felt about how that character, you know, turns how they how that character shift happens and how that's reflected through the rest of the characters and the rest of the world is like this then slowly pivoting lens from the cynicism the very like nearly anti-humanist lens that uh that alexander himself is to like a, a, a essentially a man of poetry a man who believes a man who has this like uh good you know if completely 
um, blinded and and driven insane by the glories of the universe, uh, at least he's now like subjected to it right now. He's not, he's no longer cynical or above it all or that narcissistic. Uh, and I wanted to know if that change was as like stark for anybody else and generally what you thought about that. Um, I saw Harry's hand up first, but I want to make sure we're following this point. Harry. Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's it's interesting. I, I never necessarily read this character as narcissistic so much as self-involved or maybe solipsistic, which is how I would characterize a lot of these these characters, particularly in the very excellent first act, which is simultaneously doing the thing that it's aware it's it's doing while commenting on that thing, right? Like what we talk about how this character is, is this blowhard who, um, who never shuts up about the, the sort of like the emptiness of contemporary society and culture and how savage man has become. He also bemoans in almost equal part, his own contributions to that. The fact that he knows he's a blowhard, the fact, I mean, he literally recites the words, words, words segment from Hamlet and then says, now I know what Hamlet is talking about. One of his other friends who's coming to his birthday party says that he hates this guy's monologues. Um, He recites all of this to his son who is mute. And the way that they communicate is just that he uses his, his silent son as this sort of sounding board to work himself into this lather of, emotion and in despair, right? And so like, these are all characters who have arrived at their own sort of philosophical existential dead ends in this movie, like almost to a character, right? Like they're, they're characters who have worked themselves and talked themselves into these uh, existential traps where they know who they are, they are unable to escape their own egos, but those egos have not derived any sort of like clarity or answers or happiness for them. And so we get this amazing, uh, like birthday party scene where these are all characters who hate themselves and hate each other trying to celebrate this thing, right? And, and at the same time, deeply, uh, horrifically aware of that dynamic and the vibes that they're putting out and why those vibes are happening. And so realized in their understanding of themselves without any answers on how to get out of those things. And I was really um, impressed by that. And I think that that, to, to, to get to your um, question, Jason, I think that really sets up for the, the movie to follow is that um, this is really a coming of age story for Alexander, right? It's his birthday and he is sort of learning what he has to do and, and what he has to leave behind because the nuclear devastation that follows this birthday party, it's sort of a natural uh, externalized extension of what they had already been doing, right? Like if if all of these characters represent their own sort of like dead ends, then nuclear devastation itself, nuclear war is like their generation or mankind's end, right? It's like, this is, this is what mankind has ultimately wrought. And I think that there's a there's a parallel there between what Alexander has wrought and why and what the nuclear devastation has wrought and why. And Alexander is attempting to understand and reconcile with and take responsibility for his part in all of that. And he arrives there through this the sacrifice, right, which is giving up everything that he loves in order to see it keep going. And this becomes this this fable of self-negation that actually reminded me a lot of um, Paris, Texas. I know that's kind of a weird... Um, a weird place to go, but like they're both movies about fathers who are realizing that their legacy is something that they have to undo rather than something that they have to impart. Right. This becomes a, this becomes a movie of, about Alexander um, deconstructing himself, literally about him negating himself from the world. Right. And 
Um, why he's doing that and um, why he has to do that is, I think, what what this movie is interested in. And and so I think it's it's really interesting because, like, I think that the turn is definitely a turn, like you said, but I think it's actually really well prefigured by the first act and in an unusual way, right? Where, like, the, the first act of this movie is so unusual because it's so loud and it's so obviously talking about what it's talking about and everybody has monologues, but, like, as as Aaron said, it's sort of more about the monologues themselves than the content of the monologue or in the sort of uh, filmic sense, like they, they occupy parallel spaces in, in terms of importance, right? We're like, we are meant to care about what the characters are saying, but we're meant to care about what they look like and how they feel saying it as much, right? And I think that that looking at it that way really helps set up for um, the, the eponymous sacrifice that follows, um, I think. Yeah, I uh, uh, not to try and own Jason's ass here, but my description of narcissism was uh, in relation to damnation. Uh, I, I think that I wouldn't describe. Ah. I don't think I'd describe any of these characters as narcissistic. I, I would describe the characters in damnation as nihilistic, which is also something that I don't think uh, uh, Alexander at least uh, shares. I think that that Alexander. Um, at the beginning of the film, he, he, he is quite a bit different than his character at the end. Um, but I, I do think that there's enough there to, to kind of set up his turn. I think there are things that he does very deeply care about, right? Even if he has, uh, you know, is having relationship troubles with his wife. Um, I think he still cares about her to a certain extent. He, he lives, I think, a, a pretty peaceful life. Um, he very clearly kill, uh, cares quite a bit about uh, his son, Little Man. In fact, he talks um, with the the kind of family friend and uh, kind of postman, um, Otto. Uh, he talks quite a bit about how uh, his life has actually changed for the better um, since Little Man came into his life, right? And he doesn't feel that his life is, is simply just wasted. Something that all of these other characters kind of talk about over and over again is, is the, the fear that they're wasting their life or the idea that they're looking forward to a life that has not yet begun, right? That there's something just over the hill that will kind of signal the beginning of a, of the true living that they're looking forward to. Um, I think that this, this movie um, it's, it, it's, you know, you, you can't really over exaggerate that, that this is a really like not just spiritual, but like religious movie. Um, Tarkovsky was, was religious. He was Christian. Um, I think that something that I think a lot of like film people, film critics uh, have trouble with uh, myself very specifically is like actually talking or like really thinking about films that are, that are genuinely religious um, because a lot of people uh, that are very deeply into films aren't religious. Um, I noticed this a lot with like silence when it came out uh, Scorsese silence a few years ago. This is a movie that's like very Catholic, right? Um, I, th I think that the characters change near the end of this film makes sense if you like truly, truly believe in God. Right. And if you you view the kind of current state of humanity as the an ultimate rejection of, uh, you know, this gift from God. Uh, but at the same time, kind of the, the the juxtaposition there is that the only true salvation is with God as well. Right. So it's kind of a it's kind of a contradiction there. Um, and I think that 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 is what the character kind of realizes at the end. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I kind of I, I kind of got it. But I do feel like what Jason said with like there's a middle part of this film that is like very 
interested in all these side characters who are not the main character. And so it does maybe get away from that just a little bit. Yeah. By the end, we're, we're totally into him. Um, Seth. Yeah, Aaron, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the religious angle because that is something that I was thinking as I was watching it kind of reminded me of the, uh, the, the truism. I don't even know what the right word is for it, but that like that there are no atheists in foxholes uh, where when these characters faced with nuclear annihilation, the entire setup of these characters uh, kind of falls by the wayside. Alexander, who is, you know, concerned with the, uh, the truthiness of acting and aesthetic and poetry uh, just sort of abandons all of that uh, and, you know, supplicates to God uh, for redemption and obviously, you know, makes the titular sacrifice. The one thing that has kind of like stuck with me, uh, and this is something actually that got brought up from our discussion about to live and die in LA. Uh, it made me think about this all the time, uh, whether or not the director uh, is being sincere or, or ironic in their sort of like, uh, you know, thematic telling of an idea. Cause in this case, the thing that stuck out to me is Alexander is uh, seducing Maria and the, the parallels are clear there uh, because of a deal he made with God uh, to save everything. Um, but she is a witch, which in religious circles, like that's paganism. That's, that's not Christianity. That is like, uh, you know, textbook, not, Christianity. And so I guess I'm curious what you thought if you thought that uh, Tarkovsky was saying, you know, sincerely, God is the way, the truth and the light, or that, you know, humanity is so perverted in its, in its, you know, social constructions that we can't even get that right. Um, yeah. uh, oh, go ahead, Aaron. Uh, you sure you want to go? Uh, I, I can go too. either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Why don't you give your thoughts? Yeah, on? I, I mean, I'm interested. I'm interested in what Seth was saying. And, and Aaron, you said a lot of things too, that I really like and that I, that are really good ways into sort of like my understanding of this movie, particularly, um, Alexander's relationship to little man, the fact that it gives his life meaning, but he's also terrified of it. Um, he says at one point that he's desperately afraid that he's too close to little man, that it, it, it powers too much of his desires. This movie is, is oddly, um, for a, a Christian movie, it's a very Buddhist movie in a lot of ways too, in that like, there is a very clear relationship between, um, desire and pain explored in this movie. Everyone is afraid. They're afraid because of their desires, right? About how badly they want other things, how badly they want to be someone else, how badly they want to be somewhere else, how badly they are waiting for their life to begin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this movie is really an exploration of that fear in my mind. And um, that sort of like gets at both the contradiction that Aaron, you had talked about, especially the religious angle of that contradiction, the idea that that humanity is doomed, that salvation is God, that, that humanity has to find that for themselves, that sort of thing. But also, um, Seth, what you had said where um, the, the sort of like literally Madonna whore dialectic that the Virgin Mary character Maria represents here is both, right? Because her pathway towards salvation is something that is itself profane. 
um, much like the the character uh, Alexander, he has to find his salvation from himself through this this profane sacrifice, right? He has to give up everything he loves in order to love it. And this coincides with the central sort of religious metaphor of the uh, film, which is the the three wise men, the the adoration of kings by um, is that a Leonardo DiCaprio painting? Or Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> oh no! Uh, Jason, you got to leave that in. Jason, you got to leave that in. Uh, oh, yes, yeah, so that's uh, Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and uh, when 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 they see that Da Vinci painting, thank you. Um, one of the main characters is terrified by it, right? He says like, it's, it's horrifying to look at. And we repeatedly reframe the way that we're looking at this painting. And it, it, in my mind, and I'm interested in, in your mind, but to me, it was, um, exaggerating the sort of like monstrous or greedy qualities of the king kings themselves. And the idea that even as these kings are approaching Christ with these gifts, they are in effect condemning him to death, right? Because as we know now, um, the moment Christ was born on earth, he was doomed to be killed by people. So like these, these three wise men represent literally like the earthly things coming to kill salvation. And we see this juxtaposed with Alexander and his um, seduction of Maria, right? Is that this idea that like, that that salvation itself is sort of a profane thing for people because we had this whole conversation in in my mind the best speech of the movie right which is um alexander talking about what he tried to do for his mother where his mother was bedridden and she tries and she looks out her window at a a garden that's overgrown and out of his desire to make the world more pleasing to her he goes out and he trims the garden. And in doing so, he realizes that he destroyed what made the garden beautiful in the first place. And he, there's a really, I, I don't want to complicate this any more than it already is, but there's a really fascinating interaction with Maria where she continually asks him if his mother saw the garden and how she felt about what he did. And he can't tell her and won't tell her because it doesn't matter really how his mother felt about it. What matters is that in his mind, he ruined it. And I think that's what this, movie is, is kind of all about is that like these characters, they might all love each other, right? But they think they all have ruined one another. Like Alexander, I think he genuinely earnestly believes by the end of this movie that he, he is ruining his wife and he is ruining Maria and he is ruining all of these people. And that is why he has to negate himself regardless of whether or not that's true. Right. I think that, that the important thing is the belief that he has this sort of like, the the way that he thinks his fear and desire corrupts love and its output um, through his desire to you know pre- preserve it or alter it or put his stamp on it or what have you is like it's corruptive in some way right and and I think that Alexander embodies this fear of corruption and especially the corruption of his son right and and the sort of generation to come which is why his quest becomes this sort of like i'm going to undo the things that i have done including nuclear holocaust in order to create this world where my son can live where the next generation can prosper but to do that i have to eliminate the self i have to eliminate everything i am because everything i am is this profane destructive thing because of the way that i feel it yeah and it's it's um I guess kind of a, a parallel in interpretation there. I think that, that Alexander is also someone who is, um, you know, concerned with the, the complications, uh, of, of kind of modern life. Right. I mean, there's the, the, the very, 
uh, obvious um, idea of, uh, you know, kind of technology moving forward, creating nuclear weapons that will kind of in- inevitably uh, wipe out, you know, everybody or at least most people on the earth. Right. Uh, but there's also um, kind of a similar feeling that you get with just kind of general uh technological advances. Uh, I think that the way that the the television and the radio, for example, are kind of uh, shown here are interesting, specifically the shot of the characters all kind of sitting around the TV. Uh, the TV is just like blinking kind of nonsense, right? And it's just like on and off this kind of white flickering light. Um, I think that, that Alexander and, and Tarkovsky are kind of upset with uh, the, the structure of, of modern life. Right. And, um, you know, one, very early on in the film, Alexander says that uh, someone said that uh, that that which is sinful is that which is unnecessary, right? And I think that modern life provides a lot of things that are unnecessary. Um, and if you, you think about, uh, you know, uh, the adoration of the Magi, right? Um, Jesus was the Lamb of God, right? What did he do? He died. He took away the sins of the world, right? Um, and in, in that manner, uh, the sacrifice that Alexander has to make uh, is to kind of sacrifice things that are sinful, that are unnecessary, right? He has to burn down his, his house. He has to give up his life um, so that this kind of annihilation can be um, um, passed over, I guess. That's really, really well stated, especially the thing about the unnecessary and that that links in another prevailing motif of this movie right which is um the self and ego and presentation and performance right where like alexander in addition to everything else he is a former actor and he gave up acting because he felt himself being subsumed by his roles and he didn't want to give up his ego and he even himself says that i I understand that the the identity that I affect is itself a performance. This performance is so meaningful to me that I don't want to give it up. And that's why I quit acting, right? And so you juxtapose that with the repeated use of imagery in this movie pertaining to mirrors and windows and reflections. And um, what is unnecessary ends up being the whole of who he is, right? Like the, the idea here is that the very ego construction in its entirety of Alexander, the man Alexander is, he has reached a point where he realizes that that is itself sin, that like mankind itself is sin. Like the, the idea of consciousness is what is unnecessary, right? Like the, the fact that the fact that he feels the way that he does, the fact that he speaks the way that he does, the fact that he has the relationships that he does, it, it has all become this ultimate manifestation of sin in his mind, right? And sort of like the idea that that uh, modernity and um, that which is unnecessary and all of that is is all the the sort of like ego manifestation that becomes this sinful thing. And he has to deconstruct that and undo that in order to reach his salvation again, right? As I think what's happening. And and again, I think this is all like something that that is happening to him. I don't I don't know that necessarily um Tarkovsky is is stating that this is correct, that he is correct for feeling this way. I think that it's more personal than that, to be honest. I think Alexander is like very much an author stand-in in in a lot of ways, but maybe we can talk about that um, later. Well, maybe we can talk about it now. I guess pursuant to like the conversation around motivation and sort of how his character is developed, Alexander, like the stupid question, if he does feel repentant about you know, if he feels responsibility for the manifestation of that sin that is ego, 
why does he feel shame for it? Why at the end is he, you know, crawling through the dirt uh, and avoiding, you know, his family members as he sets up to burn the house down and destroy? I mean, this probably has a very simple answer, but I just want to like try and construct I guess the point around what I'm actually seeing in the movie, which is, you know, right at that end point, after he wakes up from his last nightmare, he is very, very set on, you know, enacting the remaining, um, uh, the remaining, you know, tenets of his, of his deal with God. Uh, so what, what, where does that shame come from if he's doing something that he knows is like righteous, I guess in that way, or or does he feel that righteousness? Seth, do you have a, do you have an answer you want to? Oh, well, I mean, I'm, it's it's not a uh, it's not a terribly informed answer. It's probably a Bible school answer where uh, man covered himself in shame once he became aware of sin, uh, and in the same way, you know, Alexander uh, is aware of of all the sin he, he has committed through you know ego through society through uh, the consummation of, uh, of a sexual relationship with Maria, like. I feel like that that sort of makes sense to me um, that he would be sort of running and hiding in shame and doing all of these surreptitious things. Uh, Also like for me, it just furthers the sort of Christ metaphor uh, because, you know, my understanding of Christ is he was always set apart from man. You know, he, he he is among us, but he is not a man. Uh, in the same way, Alexander, you know, is among his family, but hides from them, does not commune with them, waits for them to leave, and then acts out his will. Um, I got a maybe a different interpretation. We'll see if this anybody bites on this one. Uh, I I don't. Uh, I do think that. Alexander is maybe a little shameful, uh, maybe midway through the movie about some of the stuff. I think that's a, I think probably a pretty accurate reading. Uh, I don't, I don't think he's shameful at the end at all, though. I think that, uh, uh, I think he made a deal with God, right? And he is, he is doing what he needs to in order to uh, perform his duties after that, right? He needs to, he needs to burn his shit. He needs to give up sure. his life. He needs to get out of town. Like that's, I think he's, he's doing what, He's he's fulfilling his bit into the bargain, as I guess. Yeah, I kind of read the end of this. Yeah, no, I definitely see that too. I mean, like the surreptitiousness of it. You know, he's dodging behind his family's back. Is it just shame over having you know done having uh, you know as Seth said, consummated his relationship with Maria? Is he like worried that they will stop him? Uh, I guess where I, I think that- it's that. Yeah, I think that. I, yeah, I think it's it's. Uh, I think that it's it's kind of a practical thing is <laughs> as, as boring as that answer is. I think it's kind of a practical, I need to sneak around so I can burn my house down kind of a thing. Um, uh, but also I think there are, there's, there's like a hint here or there that I think his, his family may have been also a little already worried about him. Um, I mean, uh, there's the, the speed that the ambulance shows up at the end, right. Uh, to yeah, take him away. That is like, quick. yeah, well, comical or like, dreamlike or like subversive or whatever you want to use. Right. But like, I think it's kind of clear that maybe his, his family um, maybe suspected that he was a little off his rocker. I don't know. Maybe that's, I'm reading too much into it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think that I don't disagree with Aaron um, or Seth. I'm classically doing this sort of um, 
synthesis thing. But um, I think that that the way that the second act in particular, where he's shamefully avoiding his family, it, it really speaks to and integrates well with a lot of the themes of this movie in how sympathetic and tender and sad that is supposed to be, right? Like, I think that his avoiding his family is not only a manifestation of guilt, it's a manifestation of his love and the love that he now experiences as this new thing, right? Where like, this is a man who now understands the true aspect of the adoration of the three kings, for instance, which is that the three kings loved Christ, right? They loved Christ to death, literally, because that's what people do when they love something. I think that that's kind of the overarching thesis of this entire movie is that humanity is doomed to destroy what it loves because it loves it. Because when we love something, we become afraid that we're going to lose it. We become afraid that it's going to lose us, that it's going to um, change somehow or end somehow. And our attempts to preserve that, our attempts to preserve ourselves through ego, through identity, um, it, it creates things like like nuclear Holocaust in the end, right? It creates that which is unnecessary, which is that which is trying to preserve. And so I think there's a really great tender um, sympathy to Alexander's avoidance as sort of like a course correction from who he had been and how he had been behaving is that suddenly it's it's less shame than desperation, right? It's like he now has this mission Uh, to make this sacrifice. And he understands the nature of that mission means that he has to separate himself from that, which he loves. And there's like a really great, like, I always got the impression that when he's hiding from his family, it's something that is very deeply sad. Right. And that's, that was fascinating to me. And I think that this explains why in a sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, he comes, he comes off as a little uh, pathetic even, right. Not in like a, a, I guess kind of a negative way, right? But I think he's someone to be pitied uh, in a certain manner. I think that, um, you know, the scenes of him hiding kind of at the very end of the movie maybe don't speak as much to me about that. But the scene where he sneaks out the night before uh, in order to go to the church to meet with Maria, um, I think that 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 scene does, right? And even the scene of him um, talking with Maria, you know, that this is a scene that is... I guess inherently sexual, right? Like he's, he's going to sleep with her in order to kind of make the sacrifice. Um, but it's, it's not erotic at all, right? It's, it is, uh, if anything, what she's giving him is not, um, sex, right? But it's, it's some form of comfort, right? It, it does feel like he is a character to be pitied, uh, in that manner. Um, and and also we, we kind of brushed over, Harry brought it up, but we brushed over it. But the, the conversation about the, the garden, um, I think, kind of uh, uh, accentuates that as well, which is like a very, very sad conversation. And you see her um, crying in like a very religious manner, right? And that she is kind of taking on his feelings and his his kind of guilt about that experience. Um, and in, in crying, she is not just sympathizing, but she's like truly empathizing uh, with him God. in that moment. Yeah, she's absolutely a sin eater. You're right. Like that's like okay. it, uh, he's played too many JP JRPGs, uh, folks. Right. <laughs> uh, that is a religious thing. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. of course. It's on my ass a lot here. Um, but uh, I like specifically the scene that you're referring to. He he becomes a child, right? Like she literally like swaddles him, basically, and like and coos and tells him it's going to be all right. And it's it's very much like less a sexual thing as like a return to the womb it feels like and very much in the in the sense that like you're right like she is she is taking on his sin and his sadness into herself and like 
and he is sort of like, if anything, ashamed of that aspect, especially as he talks about what he did to his mom, there's that conflation, right? Of like, love becomes destruction because of the way that we communicate it, because of the way that we have to be about it. And I, I think that, you know, his, uh, maybe sin's not the right word, but like his, his, um, I guess we'll call it sin there. His sin there in regard to the, the, the kind of the treatment of the garden, uh, you know, the, this act of love that, that was ultimately destructive and due to kind of a difference in perspective, um, you know, ended up being a negative thing uh, uh, for him, even, you know, his grandmother, but also for him as well uh, when he kind of sat down in her chair and kind of looked out the window at what he had done. Um, I think that that is, you know, symbolic or representative of kind of the the main sin of mankind that that is is causing these issues right like that is the thing it, it's the same thing it's representative of kind of the you know technological change of the complications of modern life that gets away from kind of the spiritual more basic form of living uh and more, more basic form of living and, and worship and whatnot um you know it is it is representative uh of that in a manner right it's it's this constant desire um, not even a conscious one, but just this unconscious need in order to change the world around you in order to try and improve upon it. Um, and then as you step back, you realize that what you've made is actually uh, m- much worse than than what you had before. Yes, specifically, it's the projection of self, right? I mean, the, it's highly implied in my mind that the reason why uh, the garden is quote unquote corrupted is because he realizes that he hadn't been doing that really for his mother. He had been projecting what he wanted and what he assumed his mother had wanted. And I think that, that this movie is making the case that it is impossible not to do that, that all of our actions are projections of ego, that it, it's in, so it's, it's in a sense, a true sense, impossible to um, do something for someone else in, in a, in a way, right. That isn't a sacrifice. It all gifts become a sacrifice because they're, they're about the subsumation of ego instead of the projection of ego. And that also works into why he avoids his family, right. Is because he realizes that throughout his life, his expectations and his, um, love was becoming pressure and becoming direction to put upon his family. And especially, I mean, I, I hate to do this, right, because of death of the author. But when you like, when you examine the idea that Tarkovsky is making this movie for his son, it becomes like utterly heartbreaking and beautiful, right? In that like, it's just a really tender plea for his son to be his own man, right? And to sort of like, it's this, it's this religious awe and fear that of influence of the way that he has influenced his son and the way that he has influenced the world. And, and the, the irony and the beauty of making that a movie, right? Because like, this is the ultimate manifestation of Tarkovsky's ego is that like, he's literally projecting himself into the world through his art and that's what he's talking about, right? Is that like, he's afraid of what that's done, of what it's doing and what it, what it's going to affect. And he is attempting through the, the very means that he is, uh, has done that to sort of try to undo that by, by at least sort of like using what he knows in the sort of profane way that he knows it, uh, to undo the effect that he had had. It's, it's exactly in parallel with the, the profane and the sacred of Alexander's journey in this movie, right? It's wild. Yeah, to, to go back to the uh, uh, kind of the, the garden metaphor as well, I mean, the, the, the thing there is that, you know, I think that the idea of a garden is, is probably pretty obviously biblical, uh, right? But that um, 
the the thing about the garden that he that he said in that story is that it was it was overgrown, right? Like his 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 mother was not able to was his grandmother or his mother? Grandmother. I believe it was his mother. His mother, uh, his mother was not able to really care for it very well because she was kind of, of sick and bedridden, and it was this overgrown but beautiful garden, um, and that, that he tried to kind of trim it and, and whatnot in order to make it more orderly. Um, I, I think the thing about the garden is that it 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 was already perfect, right? Like it was it was given in that state, right? Like the the comparison to uh, the world, right? Especially if you're looking at. Um, you know, nuclear weapons is something that not just kill people, but will render the world uninhabitable, right? Um, I think that the idea of the, there's this this world that was given to us that was by design perfect, right? Um, you know, maybe there's things that we could do with it. We're not, I don't think, just expected to kind of roam outside and, and sleep under trees and whatnot. Um, but the world as it was provided was perfect and that any anything we're going to do to try and alter that or anything we do to truly alter that is going to end up uh, uh, kind of being for uh, for the worse. Um, so I really I really loved that that last scene. I, I think that not the last scene, but the the, the conversation specifically with uh, the garden or around that, I think, is, is the high point of the movie. It is. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, in retrospect, it captures a lot of those ideas about how, like you said, like our impression of ourselves upon the world, not just like the earth, but the world and society is like an adulteration of it is is a sin at a a core element. It's like Harry was saying before about all gifts or sacrifices um, and that uh, I don't know a lot of pieces are falling into place for me about this movie, but um, we're coming up on about time, um, not the uh, 2013 romantic comedy film, but the end of our <laughs> podcast. Uh, and we will be, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we do not want to try and uh, be pretenders to the Cody's Nodi's throne. So you won't hear the theme. Uh, you won't hear uh, my man's dulcet tones, but you will hear our final thoughts about this movie, which I'm going to open the floor to right now. Anybody else have anything to say? Why did everybody sure. leave? I'll go, I'll go if nobody, nobody else has anything real quick, even though I was just talking. Characteristically, uh, more to say. I have to project oh, my no, you do. world. Uh, I, I will say uh, real quick before I pass it over to Harry then, uh, that, that uh, there, there's, there's three great tropes in all of filmmaking. Uh, and every great director must wrestle with at least one of these tropes. Uh, when, when making uh, movies in their career at least once, right? The first is a very hot day that's just getting hotter, and the heat is uh, symbolic of other forms, you know, oppression and suffering and whatnot. That is a classic, undeniable. Did you say that is Stray Dog, nineteen forty nine. Uh Twelve Angry Men, Do the Right Thing. Yeah, so many Crime and Punishment. So many. There's classics. In so the many heat classics. Of the night. Sure. Uh, number two is. Uh, 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 kind of like the persona Mulholland drive, like uh, identities emerging together and becoming unsure uh, as someone because becomes unsure of this other person's identity and their own identity. And they start to merge. That's number two. That's a classic. That's all, all my favorite shit has that. It's great. Number three is a person with apocalyptic vision uh, just over the horizon that they can't shake that is coming even closer uh, over, you know, just kind of over time, uh, in the way that this movie take shelter. Yes. Take Sorry, I'm shelter. Now. You, no, it's, it's fine. Uh, it's fine. Uh, the way that this movie does that is great. Uh, you know, there, there's not, uh, with the exception of kind of like the burning house and whatnot, there's not like 
bunch of cool apocalypse stuff. I will say there's the there is the the one shot that's uh, kind of shown again and again of the city street with the dead bodies kind of stirred around. It's great, right? And the first time you see it, it's empty and you're just seeing the trash. And then later you see the dead body and you see an image of his dead son, of course. Um, that that shot is great. Uh, but I think the the most amazing thing this movie does uh, is that you do hear kind of the, um, you know, kind of the, the sound of, of kind of warplanes uh, flying overhead. But every like second half of this movie before he, he sleeps with Maria, Every like thirty seconds, there's like a very, very like faintly audible like, just like mm-hmm. that. Did you guys notice that? It's just like a bass rumble that that just happens regardless of what whatever else is happening. They're just like very faintly in the background. I only noticed it because I have like a pretty nice speaker set up, and it is just like it is just like this constantly like this this rhythmic constant just like slow rumbling and it doesn't make sense what it is it's not like the sound of bombs it's not the sound of airplanes but it's just like this this impending doom that is like sounding off every like 30 seconds it's great the when i picked up on that i was like this is the coolest shit in the entire movie uh i love that anyway that is my final thoughts do you think that's diegetic or just for us uh i don't know if it matters <laughs> I, it's it's uh symbolic uh or it's you know it's uh yeah, it, it, it both or neither. Uh, speaking of diegetic, that ties into sort of, I have three spare thoughts. First of all, we um, sort of hit this point, but just one more time, like think about um, the fact that the nuclear weapons are themselves sort of like the ultimate um, symbol of the, the sort of um, love and fear dialectic that we've talked about, right? Like literally nuclear weapons were developed to defend something. And they will be the cause of the Earth's destruction, right? So, like, that—that that is literally mankind's urge to protect what it has, um, get, becoming the thing that destroys it. Um, so, that sort of classic metaphor plays out here as well. Um, the, the second thing is uh, we didn't talk about her very much, unfortunately, because there's so much to talk about. But um, Susan Fleetwood's performance as Adelaide is, is unbelievable in this movie. Um, she has one of the most affecting speeches um, in the entire movie, in my mind, where she talks about how she spent her life denying herself because she didn't want to be beholden to the things that she wanted. And that ironically made her just as beholden to the things that she wanted, just in sort of the inverse, right? Like she says, I have never loved. I loved one man and I married another. And it was always because I didn't want to, like, it's so she she has become this person who lives in a perpetual state of self-denial, um, which is a really fascinating and, and extremely human thing. Like, I think that that's totally like, what a character that is. Um, and especially the way that she interacts with Alexander is fascinating. Um, and then finally, this movie got my ass quite a lot, several several times, right? Like, first of all, they literally mention Shakespeare, Hamlet, Dostoevsky, um, I, I was like, oh, this is like a stage play. This is like a Beckett play. And then like these motherfuckers like say the same thing. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm one of the fucking dudes that's in there just talking out his ass about this stuff. And then uh, they go out of their way in, in like the last moment, just like it's like a, a drive by. Like they circled back around and they're like, also, Alexander, um, he believes he and Little Man were Japanese in another life. And he has this prevailing fascination with uh with japan and they play diegetic pan flute music multiple times that is just him playing his favorite music because it's japanese and it's like they really had to make my man a weeb also just like right at the right at the last minute just to to fucking tarkovsky was a weeb 
yeah, Tarkovsky loved uh, like Japanese, uh, I believe Japanese films, but like Japanese writing and like Tarkovsky loved Japan as well. Uh, so yeah. Alexander really is just like a self insert at a certain point. Oh, there are myself. Yep. Somebody eating something? I was eating something when I said that, yeah. He's eating something and not using headphones. Uh, this has been our episode about The Sacrifice, 1986 film by Andrei Tarkovsky. Um, you should be able to catch more Tarkovsky movies, at least one more, at the Trilon. Go to trilon.org to find tickets uh, and a whole bunch of great fall programming. They've just announced a Jackie Chan series, a um, Peter Falk series, the Buster Keaton series running, running alongside Jackie Chan. Uh, just a lot of cool stuff. Go to their website to find tickets and other ways to give them money for what they do. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. This is Trilove. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Um, thank you so much to very special guest Seth for being on this episode. Where can people find you? Hey, thanks. It's a, it's a pleasure talking with you guys. Uh, as always, looking forward to the next time. And you can find me uh, at SN Zarati. I now give Harry and Aaron permission to do their outros. Hey, thanks. It feels weird to go before Cody, but Cody Narvison will return. Uh, fear not. We wouldn't we wouldn't do it without him. Um, but yeah, Seth, it's it's always great having you. Um, can't wait to have you again. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. I'm Aaron, and I'm going to keep lying about not being on Twitter. But you can find me there at RB, please. <laughs> <laughs>